Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, May 9th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Jen Habercorn of the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Julie. And Alice Holstein of Politico. Hello. This week, we have a special interview with my former colleague, Supreme Court expert Joan Biskupic. Joan has a new book out about Chief Justice John Roberts, and she answers all the questions you never knew to ask about the vote trading that led to the court upholding the Affordable Care Act in 2012. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Before we get to this week's news, I want to say a few words about Robert Pear, the Dean of Health Policy Reporters in Washington, who passed away this week after suffering a massive stroke. I met Robert. He was never Bob. Shortly after going to work on the health beat for Congressional Quarterly in 1986, he was already a really big name in health journalism, and I was kind of honored that he even talked to me. And while I hope that all or nearly all of our listeners knew his byline from so many front page scoops in the New York Times, you are forgiven if you never saw saw or heard him, Robert was famously shy, didn't do social media, cable TV, or even radio. Robert is almost certainly the most famous reporter never to have appeared on C-SPAN, and I checked. Uh, But he was also one of the nicest and most generous people I ever met. I learned so much from watching him work, and he often brought me clips of articles or even books about horses and dogs, since he knew how much I loved them. Joanne, you wrote a lovely obit for Politico. What do you want people to remember about Robert? I've known him for about 20 years, and he's very quiet, as Julie just said. And I think I wrote something like, you know, he sort of spoke in a whisper. But for decades, important and knowledgeable people whispered right back at him. He was a really uh, very, very good reporter. He made people talk to him. He was a little eccentric. Um, <laughs> a but little. <laughs> very, but really dedicated, really serious, and uh, and very kind. And, and Jen, I think he was, it was, his passing was well noted on Capitol Hill yesterday, yes. I was amazed at how many lawmakers noted it. Speaker Nancy Pelosi put out a statement. Chuck Schumer, who I, I didn't know this, but was his floor mate in college. At Harvard. Freshman floor mates. Spoke about him as well. And, I mean, Schumer has to be the person who's known uh, Robert Pear the longest. And uh, even Paul Ryan tweeted something today. And I think that really speaks to he was really well respected. I mean, I'm sure you guys have been in gaggles as well where a a lawmaker would be talking to a bunch of reporters and they would specifically be like, Robert, um, come talk to me about this later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not often that a lawmaker is chasing a reporter down, but Robert had that gravitas. Yes. And the tributes from his co-workers were also just so beautiful to see. And um, there was a very moving Twitter thread from a longtime copy editor who worked with him and just how, um, you know, a lot of hotshot reporters can can be jerks in the newsroom and he never ever particularly was. to copy editors exactly and to young woman copy editors he was <laughs> just so generous and really went out of his way to help folks and just inspired me to <laughs> and try to emulate that and he was also very welcoming to the young reporters on the healthcare beat. You know, he's Robert Pear, like he doesn't have to be nice to mm-hmm. the, the new people getting on the beat, but he was always very nice and a compliment from him on a story was just like, you know, amazing. 
And Julie will probably remember when we were covering Medicare, the Medicare drug bill, and we were all in the hallway near the uh, Bill Thomas's office was near the Capitol Physicians Office, and they kept trying to chase us out because we were making <laughs> too much noise. And uh, John Fury would come down from the Speaker's office and say, "No, they have the right to be here, but you guys have to be quiet." And remember the day I blamed the noise on Robert, <laughs> <laughs> and he looked uh, he looked Very, he, typically mortified. <laughs> I think he sort of liked being blamed for the noise for the one time in his life. Right? <laughs> all right. Well, he, we, we will all try to measure up to. Uh, to his memory. Uh, Now on to this week's news. Uh, Let's start with the thing that happened right after we finished taping last week's podcast. Somehow that is always how it happens. The Trump administration released a final rule that it describes as giving healthcare workers and the organizations they work for the right to refuse to participate in treatments or services that violate their conscience or religious beliefs. According to the administration, the new rules protect the right of individuals and health organizations, quote, from having to provide, participate in, pay for, provide coverage of, or refer for services such as abortion, sterilization, or assisted suicide. It also includes conscience protections with respect to advanced directives for end-of-life care. Uh, These rules replace rules issued by the Obama administration in 2011, which in turn replaced rules issued by the George W. Bush administration in 2009, uh, literally just as as that president was leaving office. Um, We've already seen one lawsuit filed in San Francisco to block these rules. Why are they so controversial? You know, I actually looked it up yesterday. The first conscious uh, clause that I could find was actually introduced by a Democrat, uh, Frank Church, in the 70s, right after Roe v. Wade. So the idea of um, protections used to be more bipartisan. There is partisan agreement that there should be some kind of conscious clause. It's it's the extent and how broad and what kind of impact they'll have is where the argument is. We've had conscious clauses for years. Uh, you know, a doctor doesn't have to perform an abortion if they don't believe in abortion. And that was the original church right, amendment. Right. Basically, it was right after Roe v. Wade and says if you are a health... 73, I think. But yeah. it was, yeah, but it was, it was aimed at actual participants. It just it said, you know, do, I think right. doctors and nurses. Um, this extends to things like... Receptionists. Are, right. right. To, you front desk to billing departments. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, this and, and it also, you know, uh, un, unlike sort of many of the, the, the conscience laws, and there are laws, as Joanne said, that, um, that Congress has passed, um, this extends expands to organizations, so like Catholic hospitals and Catholic... Well, they're and already, Catholic hospitals are already not doing that. I mean, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, the, current, the other thing is the current law does provide... A, I mean, Catholic hospitals do not provide abortions, except in a genuinely life-threatening, very limited way. Um, one of the issues is, do we need... Do we already have enough protections? And there's also a lot of questions about how this will affect uh, uh, patients who are gay or transgendered, and we're not totally sure yet. Um, Another rule is expected to come out as soon as today that will also address uh, non-discrimination issues. So it it only came out a few days ago. We're not totally sure the breadth of all its applications, but critics of it think it could be very, very, quite vast. One one of the things that jumped out at me, because I covered this back, you know, when the the fight started in the the you know, about 2008. This specifically covers advanced directives. And, and Joanne, yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they don't do sterilization or abortions in Catholic hospitals, but people do go there and die. And some of them have advanced directives that say they don't want extraordinary measures. And it's um, this seem would seem to suggest that if Catholic hospitals don't agree with what your advanced directive is, they don't have to abide by it. Now, I think that's also true now, but this is sort of giving the, the in the force real world, I mean, the, even though the church is has a stricter definition that Catholic hospitals in general to date have actually generally um, 
respect to the advanced directives. Um, there's also a difference between removing something versus you know putting in something against someone's will. So I, you know I think we'll have to see how it plays out. I mean uh, the assisted suicide, of course, is a different issue than just somebody get put on a ventilator. Um, this came up during the markup yesterday. Um, Democrats passed an amendment uh, to the HHS spending bill um, during this marathon markup yesterday that would roll back the administration's rule. Um, this is, the conscience rule. Right. Also also the family planning rule, as I recall. Yes, and several other things. It was a very <laughs> let's stop the administration from doing all this stuff uh, kind of bill. But um, Which is what that bill always is. is. what yeah. it is. Yeah, and it was interesting. And um, several uh, Democratic lawmakers were um, in very emotional uh, testimony comparing this rule allowing doctors to, to refuse to provide care in certain situations because of religious and moral beliefs. Lawmakers of color were talking about um, people in their own family having been turned away because of their race and making that comparison. And that um, was actually in the past under sort of a religious framework. Um, you know, I, I thought that was a, a very... <laughs> well, we've also seen, and, and this happened, doctors refusing to prescribe birth control to unmarried women because they don't believe that they should be having sex, so why should they need birth control? And mm-hmm. pharmacists, there's a big issue about pharmacists, mm-hmm. um, both both with contraceptives and, and particularly with the morning after, the so-called morning after pill. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the compromise reached on that was that a pharmacist, an individual pharmacist didn't have to fill the prescription, but they had to tell the patient where to get it or how right. to get it. In some cases, pharmacists would take the prescription and keep it. Right. But I'm not sure if that balance, it it seems to be threatened by this rule. Right. Well, because I would say the pharmacist thing is mostly still state by state. There never was a federal legislation passed, I don't think, on on pharmacists because they couldn't agree on what to do. I think it's interesting these um, rules that the Trump administration has put out regarding conscience or abortion access. You know, we've traditionally seen Republican presidents put them in place, Democratic presidents roll them back, traditionally the policy. I mean, it's it's been a matter of degree, not mm-hmm. zero. Right. And so I guess my point is that the Trump administration has taken these traditionally Republican policies and taken them further. You know, mm-hmm. we saw that with the Mexico City policy, also known as the global gag rule regarding what where uh, American foreign aid dollars can go, what kind of facilities can see them. And now we're seeing it on the conscience protections that they're taking them a bit further than um, conservative administrations have taken them in the past, and the same thing with the with the Planned Parenthood rules again, right. the, which had existed before, but in their in their sort of newer version, go mm-hmm. even even further. So yeah, there is this is this is definitely a trend. Mm-hmm. I, I, I spoke to a group earlier this week, and I said, you know, some people say this administration is anti regulatory. This administration, that's not true. This administration <laughs> is anti regulations issued by Democratic presidents. Mm-hmm. They're I mean, very uh, pro regulatory right. in the things they want to do, and pretty much everything they've tried to do is in court. Mm-hmm. Yes, that right. was that was the next thing. All right, well, let's move on. Uh, I want to talk about drug prices because we haven't in the last few weeks. Um, there's not been a whole lot of movement on what was supposed to be the big bipartisan issue of 2019, but we are seeing some efforts at the margins. Uh, one came from the Trump administration on Wednesday, it announced, as expected, that it would require drug companies to include list prices for drugs in their TV ads. We talked about this a little bit when it was first proposed last year. Um, What do we know about what that price is going to be and what impact do we think it might have? Well, it's hard because the list price is not what almost anybody actually pays. What you actually pay varies widely based on 
who you are and what kind of insurance you have and where you live and and what pharmacy <laughs> a, sh- you go a shortage to. Yeah. that might be happening at the time or not for a lot of people what they see on TV is going to be sort of meaningless they'll have to then sort of go do research on their own and many people aren't able or just won't <laughs> do that so there were there was i think there was some hope when they did this that people would either see the list price and say oh, well, that's too expensive for what this is treating. I mean, probably not true for, you know, there's a lot of sort of end-stage cancer drugs being advertised, and those people might be willing to pay a lot. Um, but, you know, the the hope was they they would see these really high prices, and maybe that would sort of deter the, the like, run to your doctor and get the, the, the best, newest drug. A couple of people I saw on Twitter said that they think it might result in the opposite, which is that people will equate the price of the drug with the value. So if we say this drug costs $25,000 a dose, they'll say, oh, yeah, I want that drug. <laughs> right. I mean, we don't know how consumers are going to digest this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the criticisms of this is that people will just be afraid that they see they see the price of their drug and they'll say, oh, my, I can't afford that. And they don't get the drug. When, it, as Alice just pointed out, it's not what many people pay, although the uninsured might. Although, mm-hmm. yes, there's also um, various um, programs. programs to help yeah. the uninsured get discounts. So on one hand, there's a fear that it would be a disincentive to get a drug you need. Consumers might get used to it. I mean, we know that when you go to buy a car, you don't pay the list price. So, you know, right now would be, is there going to be confusion about the drug list prices? Will there be confusion in a year or two? Who knows? Um, The other theory is that, you know, that the drug it'll shame the drug companies to bring them down a little well, I think bit. That we don't know that's that was the, your that's original the idea yeah you know like mm-hmm. if i think it was was it a secretary azar's quote yesterday if you're ashamed of your drug prices bring then them down yeah. um, right so but if you lower to, it from you know 60,000 to 50,000 that that still sounds like a lot to a lot of people it so. is a lot <laughs> it is a lot but the, the i mean the 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 idea is to create yes. both consumer awareness and competitive shame policies but it might just add to the confusion to your point about car prices if everyone knows that they don't pay the the list price is it going to become the same with drugs and then Mm -hmm. is everyone going to think that any drug can be bargained Mm -hmm. um i don't know if that well in theory any drug can be bargained right yeah so i mean it's it it does have bipartisan support generally and there are uh senator grassley and senator durbin are trying to also pass legislation that would codify this so that it's not just a reg so that when and inevitably ends up in court there'll be more protection (laughs) and i'm paraphrasing but durbin had a quote that was something like they tell you absolutely every other possible thing (laughs) about the drugs except what it costs so in that sense i mean if you're Mm -hmm. if you're told about every single consume um, potential side effect no matter how rare or bizarre Maybe you should know about the side effect to your wallets. That's the theory mm-hmm. behind this. And what's what's interesting to me is that this rule is sort of trying to combat the effect of having direct-to-consumer advertising at all, which a lot of countries don't allow. They Most don't, countries. I think exactly. it's New Zealand and Julie thinks it's Australia, so it's someplace <laughs> upside down. <laughs> but yes, I mean, uh, you know, so... It's interesting that instead of questioning that premise um, and saying, wait, why are we allowing pharmaceutical companies to market directly to consumers who are not doctors and don't know what they actually need? Instead, we're going to put this big, scary price number out there to sort of combat the enticing effects of these commercials. This is this is what we have come to in the era of lowering drug prices. Um, <laughs> and the, the drug prices, the drug ads have been held by the courts. I mean, yes. It has yeah. been, yeah, it there, has there been interpreted as, yes. a, as a, it's a free, free speech, speech issue. issue and that the drug companies have the right to right. advertise like any other product, All right. well, most other products. 
Also this week, uh, it appears President Trump is pushing uh, Secretary Azar, who's a former drug company executive, to work with Florida on a plan to allow it to import drugs from Canada, where prices are lower because Canada, like most countries that are not named the United States, limits how much drug companies can charge. Azar says, sure, as long as it can be done safely. Uh, which <laughs> Julie and I have heard that before. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty much the exact words that every HHS secretary, Republican and Democratic, since Donna Shalala, who worked for the Clinton administration, uh, uh, have used to say no to this idea. Um, so is there any chance this turns out differently this time? Well, the president is pushing and there, you know he's made it a signature issue. I mean, I don't <laughs> think it's imminent and I think it could be really narrow. I mean, I think you could end up with something where you can say, yes, Floridians can import well, drugs are, from Canada. There are already storefronts in Florida where you can go and buy drugs from Canada, which right. is weird. I mean, they don't have the drugs there, but I think they go in and they help you order them. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I, I, you know, we've this has been going on since the late 90s, the mid to late 90s. Um, some of the proposals have been only to Canada, which is a little easier to deal with the regulatory and safety issues than some of the proposals were like all developed countries, including Australia and New Zealand, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> um, which get more, you know, more complicated. And so could something happen narrow? Maybe. I'm, I'm not holding my breath for it, but maybe. Um, but I also think we should point out that, you know, <laughs> the issue is drug prices in America and not right. the issue is not how do we get them from Canada. The issue really should be this is a very roundabout way of this is not how you want to get your drugs. You I want to be for, able to afford your drugs in the country you live in. For also, me it, oh, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, I say for me, it's the irony of, you know, will it actually be a former drug company executive who makes this happen when we've had Democrats and Republicans who've all said, and they've said, I mean, there is a legitimate safety question, which is that if you are buying drugs from outside the basically closed regulatory system um, of, the, of the FDA, do you know that they are what they say they are and that they are safe and effective and that this is been a big concern for the FDA and the Department of Health and Human Services all through this debate. Every mm-hmm. FDA commissioner and every HHS secretary since this started 20, 25 years ago, 20-ish years ago, um, there, there are safety issues. And, and it's also, you know, whether the drugs are imported or re-imported, if it's American drugs that got sold to Canada and then got shipped back. I mean, it's just crazy vans. Also, <laughs> let's point out, not to be too cynical, but Florida. Granted, there's a lot of old people in Florida, but it's a very important state politically. Sure. And who represents a district in Florida now? Donna Shalala, who still opposes this policy. It sort of feels like it's a it's a bit of a political move. Yeah, not to be cynical. Keep the older <laughs> voters happy, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, and Florida's good. Florida's important. So. Florida's important, and, and they just and they just elected a Republican governor very right. narrowly, and it was mm-hmm. the governor who came up to to talk to Trump. So, but Rick Scott was sort of skeptical of the former governor, who's now a senator, who's, senator. who's a former healthcare executive. Was he's a little skeptical of this? Because too. I think most people in healthcare who who know the policy are a bit skeptical, right? That there are safety issues that. No one's entirely figured out how right. to address. Yeah. And concerns that it could raise prices in whatever mm-hmm. country we're buying. Well, that's the right. other thing. We can't. I mean, yeah. we would if we really made it that much easier to buy drugs from Canada, Canada would run out of drugs. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, I was talking to one of our um, European reporters who was in town yesterday about this Canada-U.S. thing. And she was saying that within – it was quite interesting that within the European Union, the poorer countries – uh, which have, like Romania, have lower drug prices, but then because of the EU rules, they have to be able to ship them to other countries so that the Romanian drugs end up being sold in Germany for more money, and then there are shortages in Romania. So that's 
also. And I mean, this is this is the huge one of the huge Brexit issues about. I mean, people were literally stockpiling medications right mm-hmm. up before the deadline that they extended again because there's concern about how is Britain going to get medications. Right, but the issue of like is Canada going to have shortages if we buy all their drugs because we are much bigger than Canada. Um, you know, this whole Romania, Belgium, Germany thing seems to suggest that the you know that Canada that the drug companies aren't going to just ship way more drugs to Canada to make up for the fact that we're buying their drugs, which when they could have sold them here for more money. On to the next. Yes, on to the next. Let's talk about the continuing fight among Democrats over how to expand health coverage. We already have two Medicare for All bills and a raft of Medicare for More bills. Now we have the latest iteration of what's called Medicare for America, which seems to fancy itself as the sweet spot between trying to do too much and not really addressing the problem. Uh, Who wants to talk about what this does and why it seems to be gaining popularity, including among the Democratic candidates for president? Well, it is, I would I think arguably the most progressive or robust or sweeping of the bills on the table that still allow people to stay on private insurance if they want to. Um, So it preserves that for people who get their insurance from work and like it, but it also allows basically anyone to enroll in this new plussed up public plan that's called Medicare, but is more than Medicare, just like all the other bills, which is confusing. (laughs) But um, And then it auto-enrolls a bunch of people, which is a, a feature that differentiates it from some of the other bills out there. Yeah, so it's not it's not just voluntary, yes. but this one would let employers buy their yes. their workers into this or the individual new employees. Plan. Right. Yes, but yes. I mean, most of them would right. allow individual employees, but this yeah. one would allow employers. Mm-hmm. Um it, you know, is this is this where we're going to end up? Everybody look in your crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> not if uh Republicans or the industry has their way. <laughs> yeah, not unless the, you know, not unless a whole lot, I mean, we're really not going to end up there before 2020. Well, we're not do we, eventu- right, do we eventually end up something like this? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but, you know, it's unless the Democrats have the White House, the House and 60 votes in the Senate, really mm-hmm. unlikely. But even think back to ACA. I mean, the public option was hugely unpopular, even with 60 votes in the Senate. The moderate Democrats... Two or, were, three, two or three moderate Democrats killed it. Were, yeah. They were very skeptical of the idea of it was government-run health care. Mm-hmm. It was in the House bill. Uh, it sorry, was, it was yes. skeptical among those moderate Democrats. Right, exactly. And I think, I think the politics of a public option have changed tremendously right. in just 10 years. But, um, you know, Republicans are very good at the scare tactics around a government health care plan. And I think that would come back. And we're already seeing that when Democrats talk about Medicare for all. So I have a hard time seeing... It happens soon, but I think that continuation of, you know, a public option becoming more popular among Democrats is going to continue. And maybe in 10 years... I mean, the, the debate has changed. I mm-hmm. mean, the, the whole, where the public is has changed. But, I mean, remember, the, the, the single biggest problem Obama had was the promise, if you like your plan, you can keep it. It got, to- I mean, not everybody could. The caveats got sort of washed out of that. And it became, and, and not as many people were affected as the Republicans said, but it still became this devastating political mm-hmm. problem. It was the lie of the year. It was really, really difficult. And if you go back to 93, 94 in the Clinton plan, 
one of the biggest problems, the opposition, the Clinton plan, is that everybody had to change. They mm-hmm. had to change. And the, the national conversation was different then. It was very confusing to people. And uh, the industry really killed it, all that. But one of the fundamental reasons that the industry was able to kill it is not people didn't all want to change. Now, you might wonder, why are people in love with their insurance plan? <laughs> I don't know. But they people, don't like change. It's they the don't devil, like change. Right. The they're devil afraid. you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. they've, been af- they've been told it's... Um, you know, socialism for some of them, or they just don't want to be told to change, or they don't understand it, or they do like what they have. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, as you know, deductibles and everything else we've talked about, insurance isn't what it used to be either. And to that point, the if you like your plan, you can keep it, you're exposing all the people in job-based insurance to that liability. And that seems really dicey. Which is more than half of the country. Yeah. <laughs> right. And also you're changing Medicare. And mm-hmm. people, you know, older people get very nervous about that. It's an easy Medi-Scare. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, I noticed the Republicans at the Medicare for All hearing at the Rules Committee um, were absolutely over the moon at the idea that other committees would have these hearings too. The Republicans <laughs> want nothing more than to be talking about Medicare for All so that they can bash it and scare, you know, and mm-hmm. and, and some of them are legitimate scare texts. You know, they said that the, the Affordable Care Act was a government takeover of health care, which it wasn't. But Medicare for all kind of is. So yeah. they, they have these things that they think will play well right. that, that are all that also have the benefit of being mostly true. And and for Democrats, the like we've said about the conversation shifting, the focus on Medicare for all and the massive movement around that has made things like Medicare for America seem like the moderate, mm-hmm. reasonable, less disruptive option. I think something to watch out for, though, rem- everyone who has PTSD around um, the if you like your plan, you can keep it. Um, even under Medicare for America, if you have these cheaper public plans competing with the private plans, the insurers may choose not to offer them anymore and not offer them in certain areas. And so we could see another, uh, you know, Democrat saying, oh, under this plan, if you if you like your insurance at work, you can keep it. But because our healthcare system is so interconnected and you pull one string here and things happen there, it's not necessarily true. They might not have access to the same things. And I'm sure we're going to hear a lot about that from the industry saying any expansion of a public plan is going to be so disruptive that it's going to have all these ramifications for other people. I think if we've learned anything from 10 years of the ACA, it's that nobody can predict what a particular uh, – what changing a particular small piece of the law will do to the rest of the healthcare system. We have the, – the, the laws of unintended consequences are geometrically multiplied. That's in what healthcare. our titles could be instead of being healthcare repairs. We could be unintended consequences <laughs> <laughs> Just think what we're going to be writing about medical marijuana in 10 years, right? Yeah, speaking of unintended consequences. That's right. Or illegal magic mushrooms in in, uh, Colorado. (laughs) Get ready. I think it's only Denver. Yes. We're starting small. All right. It's been a while since we checked in on Medicaid. This week we have Tennessee uh, rushing to become the first state to ask the federal government for its Medicaid funding in a lump sum in exchange for being given much more freedom about how to distribute it to those with low incomes in the state. Republicans who are pushing this say they don't intend for it to cut benefits, but it's pretty hard to see how they could avoid that. Uh, It's also unclear if the Trump administration even has the legal authority to allow that. It was one of the proposals the Republican Congress tried to push in 2017 that never could get a majority vote. 
Uh, how likely is this to happen? It's going to end up in court. <laughs> yeah, they all are. <laughs> if, short if the Trump a lot in, of things. administration right. I mean, even this goes is a really it. this is a big change to yeah. Medicaid. This is the this would be the biggest change we've ever seen to Medicaid. Medicaid. This would be you know work requirements are nothing compared to turning it into a block grant. A block grant is a fixed amount of money, and if you suddenly went into you know an economic crash, a uh, recession, uh, a catastrophe, you know even a hurricane kind of thing. Um, you just, you know, when we've, so there are people who've been on Medicaid for short terms while things have been in chaos. Um, just, you have a block of money. It, it covers, my understanding is this covers everybody, not just, including the long-term care population. This is the entire state's Medicaid program. You have an aging population. Um, it's a big deal. You you know, the governor then has a pot of money and the governor and the, and the state legislature, and they've got to make it fit all the needs. And, uh I think the administration might give them the waiver. I yeah, think they would they, like. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean they, they, they seem they, eager. They like to... this idea. Governors were really. It was sort of a care. You know, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. When when last year governors had been pushing, Republican governors had been pushing for Medicaid block grants, and then when it came pushed come to shove, they really weren't so crazy about it. They well, got when they worried. looked at how the money would be distributed the and formula. how and you the know right rate, now, right. yeah, right now, you know, states it's an open ended match from the federal government. So if healthcare goes up. The federal government gives the states more money, or if you have a downturn, if you have a recession and more people become eligible, the the federal government gives you more money. Under these block grants, you would get you know a, an inflation adjustment, but it would not apply to some of these un, unforeseen events. Right. I mean, think about two thousand and eight. I mean, how many people ended up in Medicaid in 2008, late 2008, 2009? If we were under a block grant situation mm-hmm. when there was that much unemployment and that much upheaval that fast, there was no way that people could have had the same level of services. I mean, can states do some things more efficiently if they had a little more flexibility? Yeah, they probably could. But, you know, it's it, you're not seeing other governors running pell-mell to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued that this is Tennessee because Tennessee They've actually— had Yeah, Tennessee <laughs> ran the biggest ever Medicaid experiment in the early mm-hmm. 1990s, and it was mm-hmm. it was Clinton who gave them this waiver. They created—it's still called TenCare, but the, the theory was if we put everybody in Medicaid into managed care, it will save so much money that we'll be able to, you know, pay for all these extra people. Well, it turned out it didn't work out that way, and, mm-hmm. it you know, Tennessee had a really, really hard time under both Democratic and Republican governors digging out from sort of the the ten care experiment that didn't go the way they expected. So yeah. Rhode Island has also experimented, and they they have a block grant. But theirs was this um, program that began earlier, and they 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 start out with a lot of money, so they had a lot of wiggle room. So they didn't, and it's a very small state, but they also had. A, ge- a very generous block grant, and no one else is going to get that deal, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Well, we will. Another space we will watch because I'm sure there will be more to come. So that is the news for this week. Now we will play our interview with Joan Biskupic, then we will come back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my friend and former colleague, Joan Biskupic, we won't say how many years ago, author of several books on the Supreme Court, but here to discuss her latest work, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Welcome, Joan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Julie. 
I asked you to join us to discuss the chapter in your book about the 2012 decision upholding the Affordable Care Act. For those who don't remember, this was the threshold decision on whether or not the health law would live or be declared unconstitutional. Um, Remind us briefly what the major arguments were in that lawsuit. Sure. Let's bring everyone back to 2012. It was an election year. In dispute was President Barack Obama's signature domestic achievement. Leading the Supreme Court at the time was the Republican-appointed John Roberts. Two planks of the Affordable Care Act were mainly in dispute, and but then I, and one is the it, what we have always referred to as the individual mandate. That's the requirement that everybody buy health insurance. The other was an expansion of the Medicaid plan. But let's first just I'll give you as you asked for the core constitutional argument surrounding the most prominent provision that everyone was focused on, and that's the individual mandate. It was challenged as a violation of Congress's constitutional authority, mainly under its power to regulate interstate commerce. The challengers said, sure, Congress has power over commerce, but it doesn't have power to tell people to actually do something. It has to be regulating activity. That was already happening. Yes, correct. Not inactivity. So everyone was focused on Congress's commerce power. There were two other grounds that the Obama administration was actually defending the law on. One was its Congress's authority under the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution, and then also Congress's power under taxing issues, that this arose from its authority to set taxing and spending issues. So those those things were in the background, but the real focus was on the interstate commerce question having to do with the individual mandate. And then, of course, as I say, the other plank that people were focused on was the Medicaid expansion provision, bringing Medicaid to more people near the poverty level. So I think it's fair to say that everybody was surprised at the outcome of the case. The chief justice joined the four liberals on the court to uphold the law. But in a 7-2 to decision, the justices ruled that the Medicaid expansion that you mentioned uh, had to be voluntary rather than mandatory. I think many of us suspected, but until your book came out, we didn't know for sure that this was not the original way the justices were planning to come down on this, was it? No. In fact, there were multiple shifts by Chief Justice John Roberts that I discovered in researching my book. And it ended up being that the original vote taken in their private conference around a rectangular table, just like we're sitting at here, but much larger and much fancier, Julie. Uh, The original votes were five to four to strike down the individual mandate, and then a separate vote to uphold the Medicaid expansion. In the end, as some of your listeners will remember, it was 5-4 to uphold the mandate and 7-2 to curtail the Medicaid plan. And this all unfolded from late March to late June. We had three historic days of oral arguments at the Supreme Court. I remember it all vividly. Uh, Kathleen Sebelius, who was then Secretary of Health and Human Services, was there. The Attorney General was there. All sorts of uh, state officials, including Pam Bondi, who was then Attorney General in In Florida. Florida. And Florida was taking the lead to challenge the Affordable Care Act. So it was quite a scene in the courtroom. People had camped out for days for seats. None of these officials did, but, you know, the mere mortals of the world who were following this did. I got to sit in Nina Totenberg's seat for the Medicaid argument because I was covering them for her. And I had never sat in the front row of the the press section at the Supreme Court before. I will say it made an indelible impression on me. The front row was really nice. (laughs) But you saw up close. And during During those oral arguments, in fact, it looked like certain justices were definitely uh, ready to uphold 
the Medicaid expansion plan. And that's not what happened behind the scene. So, okay, so they have these three days of arguments. Then they go back into their private conference room, you know, small space off the chambers of Chief Justice John Roberts. They take this vote and the liberal justices walk out so demoralized thinking it's over. You know, President Obama's major achievement, Congress's major achievement after decades and decades, as you know, of trying to address uh, the insurance crisis in America is all going to be struck down. Well, John Roberts did believe that Congress had exceeded its power under the Commerce Clause, but John Roberts was not ready to sink the entire law, which, as you know, you know, was close to a thousand pages. So as he starts writing the majority opinion, at that point, joined by his four conservative brethren, that was another thing that was in the air. You know, we had a 5-4 initial vote, conservatives versus liberals, you know, in favor of the mainly conservative Republican-dominated challengers against the Democratic-controlled Congress and the Democrat in the White House. So lots of politics in the atmosphere here. Well, the discussion continued, and John Roberts begins to feel like he just cannot vote to strike this whole thing down. But a core issue back in the news today is if the court is going to invalidate one portion of this law, doesn't it sink everything else? Because Congress did not write in any explicit what we call a severability clause. And Which would say if, if any part of this is struck down, the rest of it stands. That's exactly right. And Justice Anthony Kennedy, our usual man in the middle during that era, was adamant that if the individual mandate fell, the rest of the whole law had to fall. Now, Chief Justice John Roberts didn't want to go that far. And for him, it was a new quandary to suddenly have a conservative, but typically Justice Kennedy was slightly to the left of the chief, and he didn't want to deal. Justice Kennedy was dug in and said, no, we cannot sever out this unconstitutional part. So John Roberts, and you know, we're moving now, you know, into mid-April, and John Roberts goes looking for other justices to work on some sort of compromise, and he ends up working with Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan. Both of them are Democratic appointees. They're on the left. They tend to vote often with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Sonia Sotomayor, but they're the two most willing to sort of play in the middle and try to reach a compromise. Chief Justice John Roberts decides that the ground that was asserted by the Obama administration involving Congress's taxing power is a legitimate, valid way to uphold this law. But, Julie, that was never voted on in their private conference. And so there's a lot of, you know, through the months, April and May into early June, the other conservatives who had voted to strike this down are feeling like this is unfair. We never voted on the taxing part. You know, you're you're creating this. Uh, Justice Scalia referred to it. You know, we had just fly by night briefing on this, but that's actually not true. The Solicitor General at the time, Don Verrilli, did argue Congress's taxing power. It's just that it wasn't the focus of the justices. It wasn't the focus of the media. But in the end, it became the crucial defining focus of Chief Justice John Roberts. So at the same time that he starts crafting this compromise with the liberals to uphold the individual mandate, he changes his mind on the validity of the Medicaid expansion to say that, no, it was like holding a gun to the head of state to say, you must expand Medicaid in these particular ways or we take away all 
your federal match on the Medicaid funding. Which I could, should point out, Congress has done dozens of times over the years. And in this particular case, they were going to pay for the whole thing. That was right. I'm glad you mentioned the, the part about they were going to pay for the whole thing, because when Justices Breyer and Kagan decide to switch over with the chief to curtail the Medicaid plan, I believe they thought that making it discretionary rather than mandatory as Congress was doing it would still be okay for those people who would be the beneficiaries there because why would states turn down all this free money? But uh, we know that states turned down this money, the Republican-led states that were just so adamant, yes, they are still, adamantly against. I think 19 that have not expanded Medicaid. Yes, yes. At least, you know, that gap has narrowed, but it's still significant because it was the Affordable Care Act to many, but Obamacare to plenty of others. So so basically, I mean, you know, there a, a deal was done, yes? Is that is that a fair yeah, way I to think, describe this? I think you, you can characterize it as the chief working out a different kind of consensus, a deal, uh, and many people think it was for the better of the country. Certainly was the reason this monumental law was upheld in 2012. And, uh, you know, I have to say that in talking to a majority of justices at the time in 2012 and a majority of justices then as I researched this book, I could not give you one single reason alone why he did this. I think it was an amalgam of factors that led him to here. But I can say that it certainly adds a new dimension to this man who always said he based his decisions only on the law and was just calling balls and strikes. I think there was more to it, but I'm not saying that was necessarily bad in the end. It feels like some of it may have been the concern about how people look at the court. Are they really being seen as, you know, because there's now a conservative majority that they're going to be a rubber stamp for Republicans, um, and then we're going to end up with the court as divided as Congress? You know, I think that's exactly right, Julie, and I think we see more of that today. It's hard to imagine that 2012 that we lived through was not a defining polarizing moment compared to today. But I think that Chief Justice John Roberts has demonstrated through the years that he is concerned about the court's legitimacy and the court's stature, as well as his own. So it looks like we might have another case, as you mentioned, uh, headed towards the Supreme Court, which would be the third major one challenging the Affordable Care Act. Um, This would be the one brought by Republican attorneys general charging that Congress's elimination of the tax penalty for not having insurance renders the rest of the law unconstitutional, as Justice Kennedy claimed in 2012. Given how far out Justice Roberts stuck his neck in 2012, how surprised would you be if he actually would rule that the whole law was unconstitutional? I would be very surprised. But I'll say two things about that. First, given the atmosphere, given the fact that Donald Trump keeps saying out loud, all I need to do is get to the Supreme Court. Those justices are on my side. And John Roberts, in his only public rebuke of President Donald Trump, said last November, remember, we don't have Obama judges. We don't have Trump judges. We just have judges and justices. And I think Chief Justice Roberts would like to demonstrate that. I think it's going to be hard in some cases that they even have this term. I don't want to go too far afield, but just let's take the 2020 census issue over whether there should be a citizenship question. That one looks like it might divide 5-4 conservative liberal in favor of the Trump administration. We do not know yet at all. But I think on something like this that is so in the public eye and so crucial, I would be very surprised if John Roberts ended up casting the deciding vote to strike down the Affordable Care Act. I will say one thing, though. 
the way he ended up navigating the 2012 dispute meant that he never had to lay his cards on the table on the whole severability question. And that is so core right now because what the Trump administration is arguing is that the lifting of the tax that Congress did in 2017 with you know the Republican-dominated Congress and, and President Trump then in office, that that invalidated the individual mandate and everything else has to fall now. So that's on the table, perhaps confronting this court in a way that John Roberts was able to sidestep back in 2012 and didn't give us a clue on, and that will now be a main event. No, we, will, we will have to see. Joan Biskupic, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Julie. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these articles on the podcast page at khn.org. Alice, why don't you start us off this week? Sure. Well, I saw a story that was not uh, explicitly a healthcare story, but has big implications for healthcare. Uh, it was in Bloomberg, um, well spotted by uh, reporter Justin Sink. Um, Trump may define redefine poverty, cutting Americans from welfare rolls. It's um, the administration is considering changing how they calculate. Uh, who is poor and thus eligible for certain government programs. Obviously, this could impact who gets to enroll in Medicaid, who gets which seniors get help with their prescription drugs, um, whose kids can enroll in certain programs. Um, so I think this is something we will be watching closely. Yeah, this. I mean, there have been efforts to redefine poverty, particularly Republican efforts to redefine poverty for God, as long as I've been covering this beat. Um, and it does. I mean, it has enormous um, uh, budget implications for the federal budget, but it also has enormous implications for real people who currently qualify for this program. And and a lot of folks think that the current definition of poverty is is far too low and, and, doesn't, and doesn't cover enough people. So um, this would be even more restrictive. Jen? So mine is my colleague, Noam Levy. Um, health insurance deductibles soar, leaving Americans with unaffordable bills. Um, Noam's been working on this for a while. It was a really good story looking at job-based insurance. Um, and over the last 12 years, deductibles in those plans have quadrupled. You know, there's been so much focus on ACA plans that we haven't looked as closely at job-based insurance. And it's becoming unaffordable for a lot of people. And uh, Noam did a good job analyzing the national picture there. Joanne. It was a terrific piece in, um, from ProPublica in collaboration with The New Yorker by Carolyn Chan. It was called The Birth Tissue Profiteers, and it's a long, deep look at the amount of um, misleading, scientifically dubious claims about stem cell treatments. Um, and some of the people who are running these clinics and these uh, tissue banks and so forth are doctors who have lost their licenses, mm-hmm. and they're thousands and thousands of dollars worth of treatments on these unproven and unregulated, I mean, the FDA does not come across great in this, um, unproven, unregulated, very expensive treatments, some of which have been contaminated and given people infections and are, it's, it's several thousand dollars for each shot and you need multiple shots and they don't seem, I mean, are there things being developed in this field of regenerative medicine that are going to work? Yes. Do these expensive treatments described in this birth tissue profiteer stories 
qualify as scientifically valid, proven, useful things? No. (laughs) Well, mine is also about uh, dubious treatments being sold. It's from CNBC. It's called Insiders Describe Aggressive Growth Tactics at Ubiome, the health startup raided by the FBI last week by Chrissy Farr. So if you liked Bad Blood, the story of Theranos, you can think of this as sort of a sequel. (laughs) Just as Theranos was trying to revolutionize the blood testing industry, Ubiome was trying, as the story says, to create a test to uncover the link between human health and the microbiome, the set of microorganisms that reside in the human gut. We've seen a lot of research about the microbiome, and and we know that it's important, Um, but we don't necessarily know what to do with it yet. Still, like Theranos, Ubiome raised a lot of money in venture capital, and like Theranos, it started marketing its tests before they were truly ready. In Ubiome's case, it appeared to have been billing patients and their insurance companies multiple times for the same test samples and paying doctors for approving expensive tests for patients with no symptoms. And the follow to the story came just a few days later when the company has, quote, temporarily suspended clinical operations. Mm. So at least it happened faster than it did with Theranos. Um, but it's, it is both stories are well worth the read. Um, so that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at Jen Hab. At Alice Olstein. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>